Hello, sci-fi fans. This is Matt Frewer from Max Hedrum and Eureka, and you're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This episode brought to you by Michael Crate and James Husband. Special love goes out to Lee Kemp, who manages our Facebook page. If you like what you're hearing here on the Sci-Fi Diner, feel free to leave us a tip at patreon.com backslash sci-fi, spelled the right way. And by Audible. Get a free audiobook when you sign up today audibletrial.com backslash sci-fi diner. Engage. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, where we serve up interviews, news, and our view on the world of science fiction. Come, grab a chair, and enjoy the conversations. I'd say we've got an unexpected guest. Rose. Now we're going, we don't need roads. I've got a bad feeling about hey. it. Quiet. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. Good evening. I am Miles McLaughlin. Hi, I'm MCRO Garcia. And we have with us tonight a fantastic guest, a uh, guest that actually has been on the diner a few times before, uh, Larry Nemechek. I'm saying your last name right, right? Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah! No, so, wait, actually, I, I changed it since the last time. Oh, I was okay. On. One of those things. Now yeah. it's just a symbol. It's now <laughs> it's the yeah, it's the doctor truck formerly known as uh, Nim Chalk or something. Yeah, the, that's the, 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 Nim Chalk. So, the original Klingon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He's now going <laughs> by his Klingon name. But well, actually, uh, <laughs> Bob O'Reilly tried to slide me in as a general. He was going to just address off camera. Then the scene where he gets killed at the end of DS Nine, and they cut it. Uh, oh, it was general Numchuck, yeah, Number which Joe. would have been one step away from Numchucks, which would have been a whole different thing. But, yeah. <laughs> it would. <laughs> it would definitely have been. Larry, how are you doing? <laughs> After that sloppy entrance, I'm doing fine. Thanks for. It has been a while, but thanks for having me back at the diner. It's. Yeah, it's been a, it's, long time. It's, a, lot, a lot of things have, a lot of, a lot of plasma under the bridge since I was on. Last oh no, no, no doubt. I think the last time, man, we're talking a few years ago. You were, you were, you were ramping up Con Wrath, and uh, well, now you have so <laughs> many, you have so many other things that are happening. So. Well, guess what? We're still well. We're trying to ramp down the Con of Wrath, but that was that was always kind of the design that it was going to be kind of a shade tree project, and but the trees. The tree is getting pretty big now, and the shade's really huge, so we need to wrap it up. But yes, a lot of a lot of cool things have happened since then. I started my own fan service company, and uh, we have a podcast with Roddenberry and some other things on the way. And um, so, tell us a little bit about both of those things: your the the fan, and then also the podcast that you're part of. Well, Portal Forty Seven is what I finally came to call uh, a company I started two years ago. And I say a company; it's me. And a virtual assistant, but uh, it's basically the fan experience. It's the Star Trek I always wanted to give fandom. When people sit and they go, "Oh, I love talking to you because you have so many stories and da, 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 or whatever," and I, I go, "But there, there, that's right. There is so much." I say Portal Forty Seven is is for all the Star Trek fans who have no idea how much Star Trek they still have no idea about, because we deep dive into. You know, you re- you see the actors and even some of the writer producers and all that, but the designers, the creative heads, and and below that, the stunt people, the assistants, the stand-ins, so many people that worked on all the shows actively, and I mean formally work on the act. So Portal Forty Seven 
say it's like a mini con all year long. Every month there's like nine features. And a lot of that is um, some of that is like specials and discounts when I have things from archives put out. But I share documents from my archives. We have what we call telebriefings twice a month with uh, roundtables with me. I have one for the Europeans on their prime time that's daytime here and then one that's evening in the States. And then once that's a couple of those. And um, and then we have a guest telebriefing once a month where it is someone who worked on Trek often has their own show, uh, their own photos. And we use a conference call uh, interface. So everybody is on. People can pre-submit questions. It's just a conversation between me and the guest. But they're showing pictures. We're talking about things. And and literally, as we say, we are hopefully taking fans where no savvy fan has gone before because they're really getting a whole new flavor. And and our guests talk about you know what they did, but they also talk about the people they worked with. A lot of times it's people that are no longer with us in you know backstage in the offices in some of the vendors you know it's all, all the all the crafts we've had the script coordinators and supervisors and you know visual effects and art and and voiceover uh, uh dubbing people and and it's really it's really all the years that i wanted to do more besides just do articles do interviews or be at conventions and i and i didn't know how to do it i got an entrepreneur coach to to um help me put a package together so that's Portal47.net. It's We're just started our third year, and um, it's growing. And I have a premium level now called Deck One, and it's it's pretty exciting. That's it's fantastic. Like, and, and as far as I know, That's there's awesome. nothing else like it in any other fandom, much less in Star Trek. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a unique kind of backstage pass, and and it's good for wherever you are in the world if you've got internet. So, but right. we do have live touches twice a year. We have live dives. If I'm at a convention. Or we have uh, member we have portales or deep divers, then uh, we have a live dive and it's like a round of drinks on me and and we get together there. So it's pretty. Oh, and all those all those telebriefings, everybody gets a recording afterwards. So that's so great. they have that. Going on there. Yeah. So it's and what a, what a great service if you are a diehard Star Trek fan and just want to get your hands on more Trek. I'm thinking of you, Dave Sellers. Um, who listens to the show, uh, but I, you might have a new customer here. He needs somewhere else to spend his money. Um, but it, it would just be, this is the type of thing he would be into because Trek has meant so much to him. And I think for people that Trek has been such a big part of their life, you just, you're, you're providing a service, a gift, another way to delve a little bit more into the Trek world that is not available for everyone. Not without a lot of well, research. That, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got really tired when, when, when the truck world for me blew up about 05 and, and in a way that everybody knew when Enterprise went down and the Berman era ended and there was nothing on the horizon. But also the official fan club that I edited, uh, the Communicator magazine, that that blew up for a separate reason. And and then Viacom had the Viacom divorce and Star Trek went to CBS, but there was no active production. And, and all the people I had worked with for years were not there and eventually new people came who did you know it was just it was just a real i was wandering in the wilderness for a while like a lot of people were and then you had the digital revolution on top of that like what is the playbook now for a business model and but eventually um i got sick of people going you know all those people you know and all that stuff you have and the things you saw you should do something with that i'm like what and they're like i don't know but you should and so that's what portal 47 is and and eventually uh I'd like to do some, and I've done this once, kind of experimentally, do some live things here in L.A. where we have interviews. Like we had the assistant, um, she's been quoted in a couple of things. She did a TED Talk in Australia, but she's an amazing person. 
the black lady that was Gene Kuhn's assistant in the 60s on the show. We found the woman who was the women's costumer the last two uh, seasons of the original series. And her books and notes and photos were amazing. But So they're not always that far back, but that's the kind of thing that I like getting out and getting out getting out to fandom and hopefully getting on camera or getting it recorded somehow too. But, um, so that's, that's, what's exciting to me too. And I, you know, I'm in the, all the hype with discovery and the JJ movies and whatever is the new thing is cool too. But, but, um, cause you want to, you want to be relevant yeah. or be in the thick of things. But I just think there's so much out there that people, like I said, people fans and fans who don't know how much they don't know. Right. Well, you're preserving history too, and I like that. I like that part of it too. So, and you're giving some love to the um, n- not just the people who brought the characters alive, but the people behind the scenes that brought everything alive too. Um, I- I'm I'm stoked for surely this year because uh, Mike and Denise mm-hmm. Akuda are going to mm-hmm. be guests there, and uh, their contributions to Trek can't be overstated. I can't wait to, you know. Hear them tell their story. I saw that, so I'm glad not to go this year. I mean, I miss being there with them, but I'm glad. I don't think Mike and Denise get east that often, so I'm really glad for folks to have a chance to see them too. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty awesome. And your podcast. Tell us about your podcast a little bit. Well, that came out of the blue. Uh, Rod Roddenberry, as they've as they've given some of his dad's papers to the UCLA archive, uh, he and then John Champion, who co-hosts Mission Log came at me last summer and said we want to do we want to get more of Gene's papers and not just the you know scripts and memos but some of the more obscure things and some of the really cool things from the 70s and the 80s when he was kind of in the you know wander, he was wandering in the desert um, trying to get other projects going and all the back and forth about what the first movie would be which was like a real carnival at the time and and, and not a lot has been known uh, known about that because it you know you got off eventually with the motion picture and then we're off and running, but it's really amazing and uh, it's kind of lost history. And Rod said, "I want to do a podcast. I don't want to just put the stuff out there. I want to give it some context. I'd like to do a podcast." And John's idea was to just do fifteen minutes. We put the document out, whether it was like a one page letter from a fan or a letter to a fan from Gene. Or it was a memo, or it was a couple of pages, whatever it was, uh, to him or from him, uh, that are in the files, and that's what the Trek Files is every week. It's a fifteen-minute weekly, uh, comes out midnight Tuesday, um, just fifteen minutes with me and a document and a guest. And because they're only fifteen minutes, um, it's easy to get three or four in with a guest. So we've had, aside from John, I've had Dave Rossi, who was uh, who was who was. Uh, Fanboy and a PA turned uh, to an associate producer on Enterprise, Rick Berman's right-hand man for many years, and worked on the remastered Blu-rays for the original series, and is like the last Star Trek person standing at Paramount, formerly Paramount right now. <laughs> okay. um, and all, and then Dorothy Fontana was my guest for three or four episodes, so which was awesome. And we're sitting there talking about. At one point, I look at something. I said, "Did you type this?" And she said, "I think I did." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> when she was Jesus. That's awesome. We were a little more profound than that, too, but every once in a while, I was kind of like, oh, that's right. <laughs> so we've got some more guests coming up. We've done, we started, uh, I don't even know now, six, eight weeks ago. And and I, for my part, I was you know, like flattered. They wanted me to do that. I love doing it. And it's very doable since we do them 15 minutes. Um, my reputation is that, you know, I could go on all night behind a mic. 
but uh, I've tried to get better about it. But uh, we do hold these to 15 minutes, and and the documents there, it's all headquartered at the Facebook. I mean, you can subscribe through the Roddenberry site on all your you know podcatcher of choice. But um, you can also just go to Facebook. There's the document to download. There's the show every week on Tuesday, and and you can comment there. So uh, and and it's something that's different. Again, it's I whatever I do, like Portal 47, whatever I do now. 10, 15 years ago wasn't quite this way, but the last 10, 15 years, there's such an explosion of, of good stuff out there and good trek and all the different media and channels that I don't want to jump on the pile unless I can bring something that's not just the same old, same old. Right. So so Portal 47 is definitely that. And then out of the blue, the Trek Files is – because there's a lot of good podcasts. I, I'm present company accept, uh, included, not accepted, included. <laughs> um, there's a lot of good podcasts, some that aren't so – you know, they're a little, little dupl- duplicative. But I knew that this was going to be – and I still have an idea that I'm working on with uh, Roddenberry for a different kind of show too. But um, but this is definitely something that's not out there, and it's new and fresh, and and, and we're, we're diving into Gene's – we're into Gene's drawers. So, um, oh dear. (laughs) Oh Oh, dear. All right. Well, this is a different podcast than if we're doing that. So (laughs) no, well, that's fantastic. And I, and I like too the fact that you're trying to bring a new and fresh angle and you aren't just trying to recycle stuff that's been out there before. And, uh, maybe, maybe in some way what we're doing tonight when we kind of review and talk about the motion picture, but hopefully we bring a little bit more of a fresh take to it. So well, I've always, I mean, even when I was a kid reading pieces, I just – when I had the keys, whenever I've had the keys, like to the communicator, to when I've gotten to work on a Blu-ray project, anything, I so much prefer to go to the horse's mouth rather than just hear you know, hear people talk about what somebody else said about what somebody else said about what somebody else said, which right. is what half the internet is these days. So yeah. you know, there's actually one real story, and then 15 stories are all packaging it and requoting it and – you know, it's the incestuous internet. So, <laughs> so, yeah. so oh, dear. <laughs> I get. I really am not trying to come back around to those illusions, but right, right, right. it's going to be one of those shows, <laughs> oh, Larry. Dear. It'll be one of no, those. No, shows. no, no. We'll pick it up here. We'll pick it up. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that's fantastic. So, if people want to find out, like, about everything that you have your hands in, have your fingers in, where where, where are we going to? And we'll do this at the end of the show too. But where where, where are we going to send to them? The best, the best hub is LarryNemichek.com, and that's – I mean, Portal47.net has its own page, but the Con of Wrath, everything is there. My blog, my video chats, my, the, my YouTube channel is hooked into is there too. Or just um, uh, Larry Nemechek's Trekland on Facebook or Instagram, and then just at Larry Nemechek on Twitter. Yeah. Well, fantastic. That is – that's awesome. That's awesome. I, haven't, I haven't burned my Facebook membership card yet this week, although the world's kind of like reeling. But yeah. <laughs> well, there are days that I think all of us feel like burning our Facebook membership card. So yeah, yeah. But well, why don't we go ahead and move into the uh, motion picture? And I did get a few pieces of listener feedback. I saw that you saw them, Larry, on Twitter, and we'll make sure to bring them in as well. Um, but let's talk a little bit yeah. about. Uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. And uh, Miles, do you want to get us started here a little bit? Uh, your thoughts on it? Uh, kind of, why don't you lead the show a little bit here? Okay. So we rev- reviewed Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, just some basic facts. It uh, came out 
December the 7th, 1979. <laughs> um, and I guess it, that, it, almost 10 years since um, the original series went off the air. Um, I, uh, I, I watched it last week. I hadn't actually watched the movie from beginning to end in, in, in several years. So it was interesting to watch, watch it again. And uh, just try try to see if I can pick up you know new things out of it. Um, as as uh, what I remember is, I mean, fans were hungry for new Star Trek, and although it did great at the box office, uh, critically um, it it didn't do as great. But um, what it accomplished. And just coming coming as a movie, and um, things like just the, the the sets they built, the models they built, um, these things were used for decades, even after in, in subsequent mm-hmm. Star Trek movies and, and TV shows. Uh, I, I had, when I when I watched it, I watched it with uh, the text commentary from, from the Akudas, and so there's some good good uh, information there as far as like a certain set piece saying where the set piece was, was seen in other shows and and everything. Um, So, so yeah, uh, I I saw when I was, I think I was nine years old when I saw it in movie theaters. Um, I was really more into star Wars and, I'm trying to think. Uh, sci-fi wise on TV, you had Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers. Um, so, yeah. I, so, well, Buck Rogers and Battlestar had just gone away, though, by the time motion picture finally came out. But yeah, it was out there. Yeah, yeah. there. I think they were still run the reruns though for forever. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. You know that. Um, so, Larry, what was your first experience? When, when did you see it? Did you see it in theaters? Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, I, I was, you know, we say December 7th, <clears throat> like kind of ominous there. Um, <laughs> but I, I no, I always remember this because I was in college and uh, uh, our college had a, I was in speech and theater and we had a, like a speech, um, speech and debate contest for high schools as a recruiting thing to come. And our fall speech and debate contest was Friday the seventh at the end of the semester, and none of us could get out. My my group could get out to go see it that night, so we had to see it on on day two, which was like ah. Uh, and this was, you know, obviously it's all pre-internet and everything, so everything's right. word of mouth or like magazine, you know, paper. So we were all incensed that we couldn't go, but we would have all been skinned if we'd gone on the seventh and you know lost scholarships or something. So. <laughs> But no, it was a huge, 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 but then, you know, it had been out even without the internet to, to blast it or, or even, you know, message boards back in early days, uh, just on a paper level, just regular, you know, trailers and rumor mill and the fanzine world and the, and the, what there was, I guess Starlog was around and going, um, just what you got in the print world about the, you know, the movie. Cause everybody had been following this here. Here's the bottom line about motion picture. It's one thing for us to sit back and look at it like it's another like entry, you know, in the in the list. It's just one more title on the thing. But if you go back to the day, the motion picture was n- nothing like that. No dead TV show 
had ever come back as a motion picture. Nobody had ever cared enough about anything on TV to bring it back as a motion picture, much less a big budget science fiction show, uh, you know, movie. And it was also an us versus them. Fans hated NBC for canceling the show in the first place. And it was like a we took it over. You guys wouldn't have this movie making all this money. You people wouldn't have your jobs. It was a real fan ownership moment. So all, all this stuff that we take for granted now in the Comic-Con age, again, it's something that Star Trek it, – Star Wars had been two years before, but George Lucas is the first to say that if it hadn't been for Star Trek catching on in the early 70s the way it did – you know, after it had supposedly died, he wouldn't have got the money or the inclination to do Star Wars. So they kind of fed off each other. But right. Star Trek just, you know, wrote the template, wrote the book for so many things that we just take for granted now. But the motion picture was basically a vindication. It took 10 years, but by God, we proved that we could bring it back. And it was 10 years of not smooth sailing, as I was saying earlier. They were right. all. It was the God thing and then Planet of the Titans and all these on again, off again. And then the phase two TV show and then the, the motion picture was basically done from the pilot for the TV show series that didn't happen. That was going to launch a fifth network. So stop me if you t- heard that before. But it was just it was a crazy, wacky, amazing time in sci fi and media and and how things were evo- emerging and evolving and, and also fandom. And it was Star Trek begat Star Wars fandom and then begat this movie and everything after this, it changed everything. Then after that was all compared to this or on its own. But boy, when you when this premiered, uh, it was it was it was like a it was like a movement. Mm. <laughs> it was like a social movement. And uh, it was it was amazing. And that's why, even though the movie wasn't that great critically or for a lot of fans, they were so thrilled to see it. People still went back to see it. Five, it wasn't quite a Star Wars repeat viewing, but people went a billion times because they felt like they had to compete with Star Wars a little bit. But it still was the highest grossing box office, even with inf- uh, adjusting for inflation, until the J.J. movies came. Wow. None of the next gens and not even like Star Trek. You think of Star Trek Wrath of Khan and four. There was so much pent up demand. Now, some people went and saw it once and were disappointed, but there was 10 years of pent up demand for this. Oh, yeah. And. That carried it and uh, and made a lot of people forgive its you know its faults and sins in some places. Well, you know now what people would do is they would just go ahead and make a fan film. You know they would just do, you know so maybe not now, but they would have they would have if the, if the internet would have been around and they just didn't have that opportunity. Yeah. So yeah, they had the fanzines flowing. You know all the fan fiction, but um, and a couple of people there were actually there's a couple of. Fan films from the 70s that were shot on film that I remember reading about, but they were like, wow, somebody did a movie of a Star Trek. But, <laughs> but yeah, today they would just take out their passion or they would, you know, just everything was in such baby steps, but it was all there in the 70s. It's oh, kind of awesome. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. But Larry. that's special. That's why it's hard to, when you, when the critics come down critically as a movie on the motion picture, and they should, it's hard to separate the cinema of this movie from just what it represented in. In fandom, in pop culture, in in genre, even two and three years after, because it and Star Wars are such different critters. Star Wars was conceived as a movie, and it lives in that universe. And and the motion picture was like Star Trek movies are like icing on the cake for a job well done for a cast until they, you know, until they're not. But that's mainly what you know. Star Trek is a series, and that's that's why with Discovery back on, even people you know want to dissect it. 
But uh, that's that's what's always gets me. People talk about Star Trek movies. It's like, yeah, but they're not like James Bond movies or Star Wars movies or Harry right. Potter. Well, Potter was books, but uh, well, Bond was too. But they're just different that way. And the motion picture is the most unique of them all. So there. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, you were talking about print media. I, I I remember the. I think it's still in the Sunday papers. The the, the parade. Uh, it was the, mm-hmm. they had a cover of. Uh, the cast on the bridge, and uh, I think that was the first thing I saw in print media about the new Star Trek movie. But, oh, uh, okay, yeah, got me excited. Hey, um, you mentioned uh, the Star Trek Phase Two show that never was. This is hypothetically. What do you think would have happened if instead of they making the movie, they got the TV show going again? Wow. You know, I, yeah. Well, I've seen, we don't have a ton. We have like pictures of the sets and we have some of the script. There were three or four scripts that were done, the pilot and two or three, and then there were story drafts and, you know, then it tailed off, but they had like 12, 15 scripts in in working. And a lot of, you know, and they, uh, Nimoy wouldn't come, Leonard wouldn't come back and do Spock. So, um, they had came up with a new all Vulcan character, Zahn. That David Gatro was set to play, and who knows if that would have, you know, it, it's big shoes to fill. It's a big shadow to to get into. And and when it, it transmogrified into a motion picture, and Leonard came back to play Spock, and poor David Gatro's kind of left out because there's no point in having his character. The other two, there were three guest stars for the series or main new characters for the series that were started off as guest stars: Decker and Ilya and Zahn. And Decker and Ilya wound up surviving into the movie as characters and were one-offs. You know, but then poor David Gatreau didn't get to play Zon, so he's Commander Branch at Epsilon Nine at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah looking very human. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't. I, there's been a lot of thought recently that just looking at the, it's hard to look at drafts because you can look at drafts from anything, and they're like, eh. but it's hard. A lot of people have wondered later on if they had, if that had proceeded, if they would have got maybe a season, and just from cost. Because they were gonna, it was gonna be on this new network. If the new, you know, eh, back then everything was so analog and the opticals and visual effects were such a big deal. I mean, they almost sunk the motion picture. So it's if and we look at like like you're saying, Buck Rogers and Galactica at the time, they would have hopefully been at least there. But if it had been as expensive as Galactica was, and ABC yanked the plug on Galacta because the even though it had good ratings and the show actually got better the further it went, but they yanked the plug just because of the cost. And maybe if they proceeded with Phase Two, Star Trek, if it never got to the movie, um, that might have been a dead end for it. I mean, you know, with the bean counters and and so, I mean, fans might have loved it there, if there'd been any kind of internal fan dissension about it, and it was too expensive, and people went well because Star Trek wasn't a guaranteed thing. Again, we're in the time when this was all a big experiment, right? It's all right. a big, this is crazy to bring back a dead TV show. Okay, guys. It's like, you're going to get one chance at this. Don't muck it up. And and maybe um, it's it's easy to recover from a slightly mucked up movie than it is for laying out all that cash, you know, for, for whatever, 13, 15, 18, 20 hours, whatever they might have done. Whatever the order was right. for phase two. So yeah. I, I there, but yeah, a lot of people are thinking these days that if it had gone to series, it would have been a you know a pyrrhic victory. You know, it would have 
been there and then canceled maybe if it if it wasn't told if it didn't just explode off the page and off the screen right and yeah i i agree with you larry i mean you mentioned buck rogers of Battlestar galactica i mean the cost of producing those shows was astronomical back then uh they didn't have cgi everything was models um oh yeah uh, everything was practical yeah Yeah. and the visual effects that they did have were were that the old timey like the mirror and smoke and mirrors it was in or it was painted in so that really cheesy um like Battlestar Galactica had it the worst but I feel like uh Buck Rogers actually cleaned it up a little um it it was for for Star Trek to to do what it did on the screen was impressive because I we, we were all impressed with with BSG and with Battlestar Galactica. I mean, with um, Buck Rogers, because it's pretty much all we had at that time. The only other sci-fi esque TV show was Mork and Mindy. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. There was like, so at that time, in 79, Battlestar Galactica had finished. Buck Rogers had just started. So it was just, you know, smoke and here comes a ship and everyone's wearing mylar and isn't this amazing the future it just it, there wasn't yeah. anything blinky lights there. blinky lights yeah, yeah. blinky lights. oh yeah uh, disco yeah. lights too man you know just, oh well right it was it was imp- what they managed to pull off with they still used the painted uh painted backgrounds and a lot of the the double and triple exposure kind of stylization that that i'm they would never have poured that money into the show. Yeah. But to have to taken that leap to go into the film was genius. The only thing I wish they had done was follow the Star Trek plan of we're going to release a crap ton of toys, too. Because I, I, I think I wonder if there was there was a hesitation to to market the crap out of it the way <laughs> the way Star Wars was. You know, Star Wars, the cereal, Star Wars, the toilet paper, Spaceballs, the flamethrower. Um, <laughs> it, I, I just remember getting my my Happy Meal and it had this super cool blue wristband that let me decode messages from Captain Kirk. And I think I still have it. That's it, awesome. I have a belt buckle for, <laughs> for Star Trek motion picture someplace in storage. There you go. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's well, I mean, the motion picture they did that was part of it too. I mean, they did. Star Wars had blown open, you know, wrote the book on how to license the hell out of your property and make a ton of money, and they had all these big expectations, all those models. But you know, there's only so much romance you can get in the in the immediate, you know, first six months out of a work bee or something. But (laughs) but they did they did license the hell out of their work. I mean, people are still coming up with finding things. Oh my God, there there was cereal, and there were the and the Happy Meals were famous. But the the problem was, fans would go back and see the movie a few times, and it did amazingly. That box office that it had that stood the test of time was amazing. But on a practical, and there were like a whole there were whole there was a whole line of uh, books. There was like a make your own costume book. Aha, uh-huh. uh, thirty years for cosplay. And um, <laughs> not cost, not costuming, but cosplay in quotes. Um, but there were all these. There was a making of, and there were the, there was a sticker book, and there were all kinds of things from the book. And they didn't sell well. And there were models and action figures. And the first wave didn't sell well. And the and they had this huge marketing line 
with a lot of brands and makers and toy makers and everything else out there that just kind of collapsed and they never ever went back into hardcore they would do like the obvious things like model kits and action figures but that just across the board crazy crazy licensed product that like star wars had pioneered and did had done they star trek paramount never went back to that until the jj movies it's like they got like once burned they you know and they would do the obligatory magazines and books and novelization and you know the album and all that but they never tried for you know, just to saturate. That's why, and then people gripe for years. Oh, I went to Target and Walmart, and here's all the Star Wars stuff, and where's the Star Trek toys? Right. Well, it turned into this, you know. Why, why, in, just, in your opinion, why did, uh, why wasn't there more hype about Star Trek toys and, uh, and, and all the other things that there was for Star? Was it, was it the marketing? Was it the, um, was it the fact that it was, it was diehard fans, and they already had a lot of this stuff. I mean, what, what was going on? Well, you know what? I hadn't thought about this, but it just hit me. Think a minute. Star Wars was a summer movie, so you had time for the for the for the for the effect to kick in. By you know, within a couple of weeks, much less a month or two, it was a phenomenon, and you had all that lead time going into Christmas for as far as just pure out toy sales. Star Trek comes out December seventh. So even if you wanted to go and you got excited, it was too late for a, a marketer. I mean, there were a lot. There were some that took a, the, the the makers, the toy makers, action figures, whatever model kits. There was a hardcore base that was going to do it. But if it was going to expand and go viral <laughs> um, on an analog uh, version of that, um, you want that to happen before the toy makers had their product out and all the toy and you know all that for Christmas, whatever the gift was. You had to have – that's all like a months, months, months ahead of time thing. So Star Wars was on the right time frame. People are all revved up by June, July, and guess what? The toy makers that took a chance, like the original Kenner figures or whatever that are so expensive now, the original stuff that sold in that first wave, those people cleaned up. And that, and then that begat, oh, I got to get on this. I got to get in on this. And then you got all the, the manufacturers crazy. Star Trek came out the 7th. By the time anybody was excited, it was too late for Chris. It was too late for people to buy stuff. It was too late for any manufacturers to have uh, to have brought it out, and if they did, people weren't revved up enough to buy it early enough for it to make a dent in the sales. So maybe people got it. You know, the hardcores did, but a lot of times, if you were in a small, medium city or small city, your local stores weren't carrying that because it hadn't got on the radar. Hmm. And um, my God, I went back to the movie that, that I mentioned that we had to wait till. Uh, um, the next day to see Star Trek. I mean, when Star Wars opened in June, I remember it, it really, people all have Star Trek Day, what is it, May, whatever, end of May? May the 4th. May the 4th. It was years, it was like weeks later before I got to see it. I, I want to say early June because a lot of the theaters hadn't booked it. And I was in central Oklahoma, but even in like Oklahoma City and Tulsa, it was, unless you went to like the one wacky theater, it hmm. was hard to see it on a lot of screens the way you would think sure. now but anyway anyway but i think the timing killed a lot of them. now that i think about the timing probably killed it oh, that's on probably so, makes sense fun fact for star wars is the movie came out in may of um 1977 but the first action figures you couldn't actually physically get them until uh 78 what they had out for christmas was a bunch of um because 
they didn't shop around the licensing until six months before the movie <laughs> went out. And right. um, the like everybody said no. And then it just happened to fall in the lap of a really big sci-fi fan at Kenner. And he went to the, he went to the, to the president and said, we have to, we have to have this. And they, they bought the license for 10 grand a year for um, he, like the, they had written into the, into the licensing um, for all a galactic, like they basically had all the rights to star Wars and, uh, but they didn't have time to produce it. So they took games that they had and slapped new stickers on them. Right. And then they put out that box because I remember my brother getting the box. You pre-purchased this box that had this wonderful pop-up that you could put your characters on (laughs) once they were released. So you basically bought an empty box for, I think it was like $24.99, which was a stupid amount of money for a kid's toy. But my brother got it. and In 77. Right. Yeah, he collected <laughs> yeah. each one, but they didn't start arriving until 78. And it was the first time that they had paired that kind of marketing with yeah. anything and, like that. And even the guy that was excited, they had to have – I've got to have 30 minutes. I mean he had to have you know a year or whatever lead time to, to do the molds and the, and the – you know, to do the manufacturing. Yeah. You can't turn that around in a day. So, yeah. yeah. I, I also think that uh, maybe – the original Star Wars movie maybe appealed to kids more, uh, and so that mm, that's another true. reason why yeah, why the why the yeah. toys yeah, sold sold much better than the Star Trek toys at the time. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of you could now that you say that there's a, you can compare a lot to first the first chance out of the box. What does Gene do with the series? The pilot is the cage, right? Which gets criticized later for being too cerebral. And there's a little bit of action in action, quote unquote, in motion picture, but it's it's pretty brainy too. Right? Yeah, it is pretty mm-hmm. cerebral. You know, so, yeah. which is again, then you have it's almost like the Wrath of Khan in a way is a reaction to the motion picture of the way where an old man is a reaction to the cage. I never thought of it. That way. You know, yeah. sorry, I can yeah. resist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait. <laughs> Well, you know, it, I hadn't it, thought of that before, but there you go. Bing. No, yeah, that's true. That's true, and it, it kind of a re- and maybe makes a little bit of sense. Um, you know, when we're talking about the motion picture tonight, and we and we're talking about you know the stuff that surrounds it. You know, as we've gone back to the movie over the years, what are the things that continue that you, do you continue to love that make it? You know, maybe not the best Star Trek movie, but a good Star Trek movie, maybe for 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 each of you. So, Emma, I know you didn't watch this recently, but in watching the past, what were some of the things that you liked? If I can put you on the spot, you can, um, and I will do it beautifully. <laughs> uh, of course. So, like like I said before, there. So, Star Wars was my entry into science fiction in general. And there was a strong female character, and I wanted to be her. And then uh, Battlestar Galactic. I started consuming secretly because there was no way I could tell people I like science fiction. Um, so when the movie came out, it was another opportunity. And I didn't watch the TV show, the original show. Mm-hmm. Um, I just watched – I watched the movie and was fascinated. And then I I had to – I had to – I had to watch a lot of reruns to get caught up and catch all of them. Um, and then when you could rent um, TV, sh- you, when you could rent 
Betamax. Kids previously, (laughs) they had this thing (laughs) called Betamax, which was a superior item, much like Mac is to a PC, but we won't go there. Um, It was just a neat and a different perspective in the universe. And it felt a little bit more grounded in that it was from Earth. Star Wars was cool, Mm -hmm. but to me, it was it, it was completely fictional. But Star Wars or Star Trek gave had the possibility of actually happening that this we could evolve like this. We could. Star Trek is us. Star Trek is us. Yeah, exactly. And the dream of like as a kid, I always thought that there were there were extraterrestrials because that's what I saw on on television. And and then when I started watching science shows on, you know, it's a whole big giant universe seems like a giant waste of space if it's just us. Loved it. Loved it. And just to have a world that came from our world, from that there were possibilities, was it, it, it grounded science fiction for me. It wasn't, it wasn't unachievable. Can I, can I ask you real quick? So I love the fact that you didn't see this, but you loved the movie enough to go back, that you came in mm-hmm. the side door, not the front door. But what about it, about the movie made you want to go and find out more about those characters of that universe? Um, I liked Bones. I liked that he was kind of a <laughs> kind of a sass. I had a huge crush on Leonard Nimoy, and I was fascinated by the Vulcans, and especially like the way they were talking about them. I just needed to know. More. I I cared. Mm-hmm. I needed to know more. I didn't care about the chick who ended up bonding with Viger. I thought she was an idiot and she could have been a stronger female, but wasn't. Um, but the rest of the characters, it just, I I felt like, I felt like there was a possibility for us. And as I look at my iPad and my iPhone in front of my computer, the way I have my setup with my computer, it's like a little, it's like, there's a big HUD in front of me. There's, I can, you know, my little pad that scans things and tells me if I have a fever or not just the it's here and back then as a kid to imagine that it could be and to watch it be it was just wonderful yeah i was just yeah. curious because what the first two things you said mccoy is a sass which i love i've never heard it put that way but that's right i mean that's totally it and then you <laughs> fell in love with spock He's and well- Vulcans, but those are like two of the main appe- that's two of the major appeals coming out of the series about oh, yeah. why people like, couldn't let it go. Yeah. Right. I mean, McCoy was really an SOB. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> he, he just was. And I wanted to know more. I didn't get into the books. The TV show was much more and the animated series. Those I really enjoyed. And then when, um, then it just kind of continued on. And fun fact, I worked at Paramount theme parks and helped with the costuming and the effects makeup for the, the kids who would run around as characters. So with like Klingon, I knew, I know how to apply a Klingon forehead and Vulcan ears and, um, <laughs> uh, Ferengi. I know how to put on that headpiece and the teeth That's and fantastic. all of that, like just, just the creativity, just the world that opened up for me. Star Wars was, one thing, but it was just so much more real. It was just mm-hmm. so much more. I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. Hmm. And then, you know, my older brother tell me, no, you can't. You're just a kid. Okay. Yeah. But I still <laughs> pretended like I could. Oh, absolutely. I oh you didn't listen to him. You didn't yeah. listen to him. Don't listen to him. That's right. I totally pretend like I can still. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, Miles, how about you? Uh, you know, when we go back to the movie, what are the things that maybe still resonate with you that uh, stick out to you as being quality Trek for you? Well, well, Star Trek was my first foray into science fiction. Uh, my earliest memories of watching Star Trek was my father back in the early 70s on a little 19-inch black and white TV. But this was when Star Trek had a revival in popularity and there was Star Trek toys. I mean, I had the action figures. I had the bridge. Uh, I had mm-hmm. communicators. So... I, w- I was looking forward to seeing the band get back together again. Uh, Captain Kirk was my hero. Um, and so I wanted to see that again. Um, although there, probably one of the criticisms of the movie is there aren't as many of these wonderful character moments, but there are, there are there. There are wonderful character moments between, you know, Kirk McCoy and Spock that do harken back to the TV series. Um, and as an, as an adult looking at it now, I kind of like seeing, you know, Kirk just kind of, um, um, just kind of barnstorm to take the enterprise and try to save the day and watch him make some mistakes along the way and have to have McCoy tell him, you know, you know, you need, you need, you, you know, you need to listen to your people here. Um, some of the mistakes he makes in this is because he didn't listen to his people tell him we, we can't do this. And he says we have to. And, and sometimes problems happen. Um, so now seeing it again, is just, 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 just seeing, you know, it, it is there, the, the, the relationships between him and McCoy McCoy is like, and Spock also, but McCoy really is Kirk's, um, in a sense, a moral compass about making decisions and and where you know trying to do the right thing here. And McCoy is the only person who really can tell Kirk you're screwing up and mm-hmm. you you need to you know shift gears here. So that's the kind of stuff I was trying, you know, trying to pick up on that when I watched it again last week. Just, 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 just the, those relationships. Hmm. Hmm. Larry, you've obviously lived, breathed and drank track all through your growing up years and, um, had your diapers <laughs> wrapped in track and, and, you know, and, 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 and everything. But so when you go back to this movie, what are some of the things for you that, Res- still resonates as this is this is what I love about Trek. Well, yeah, um, I mean, I, the, the re- you said getting the band back together. That's I still think the first half hour, or whatever, all the all the leading up part is really really well done. It's the it's the infamous third act that turns into a snoozer a little bit, a little bit, and then the ending is kind of it is kind of amazing. Um, I just yeah, it was the reunion. It was seeing part of it was at the time. See, it's lost, but when you're seeing it in the moment, in the real time, uh, something the prophets will never know. But when we're in lineal time, just seeing all of those pieces of Star Trek that you loved getting a big budget treatment, you know. And at the time, we talked so much about the Klingons and Discovery, and, and newer fans go, "What do you think when they change the?" I I just remember thinking, "Okay, they're spending more money on the Klingons. These look more alien now." 
And a few years later, I remember thinking, okay, no, wait a minute. Since since the world is evolving this way, we sh- I wish we could explain. You know, the, even the 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 FASA games in the eighties started trying to explain why the smooth heads were the smooth heads in the in the original series years. But but everything I was I was a big um, I was a big fan of, of the background as much as anything too, and not just the background of the the incant you know the producers the creatives. But the Star Trek background, that's why like, I loved Journey to Babel. It was like the only time we ever saw anything beyond the ship in a big way about the Federation. And the fact that we're going to have all these aliens and we're going to be at Starfleet and they were going to be at Earth was just so amazing. And then they all kind of wound up being – and I know it disappointed Bob Fletcher too, the uh, costumer. They all wound up just kind of being window dressing to those big matte paintings. But even even just to have the gallery shots that weren't in the movie, like first it was on the album cover, the sleeve inside – and then the pictures they had in uh, the making of Star Trek book, just to have all of those old aliens and new aliens and, you know, just that they went to – they spent so much money on it. And then that kind of burned them in the, in the end. But um, seeing – just seeing Star Trek get a big budget treatment with costumes and aliens and the ships and the visual effects and uh, and then having the moments. And then, yeah, you watch the whole thing and again, the one – the guy that I was an underdog lover and used to root for Scotty and McCoy and, and eventually McCoy really in the early days. and But motion picture proved it, and it did nothing but but grow as years went by. McCoy always got the best lines. He did. D. Kelly always got the best lines in the movies. Mm. And, um, you know, you, you say that. And um, and Spock was being his cold distant self, and Kirk was being a – Shatner was being a really serious – I mean this movie was so – Robert Wise was, oh, Mr. Oscar-winning director. They were so thrilled to have him because Paramount wanted to do a very substantial movie because after Star Wars, you know, science fiction was a thing. It wasn't to be, you know, bug-eyed <laughs> monsters and whatever. And and at Universal did Close Encounters, right? And that was the other big entry, and Disney did The Black Hole, and that was – 78, 79, that was the big initial response to wars and all the you know AIPs were doing whatever little knockoff cheap science fiction they could do. But it was – we've got to have a sci-fi thing. Oh, yeah, we've got Star Trek. Let's use that. And they, they it was such a legitimate – you know, and they, this movie, the premiere, the gala premiere was at the uh, Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. And, and so that's how big – you know, that NASA Star Trek love connection, again, that you don't have with anything else, Star Wars or anything because it's who we are in the future. Um, and that was all part of the pedigree of this, but the, again, the box office didn't support that. And after that, they, you know, they pulled their scope back for Wrath of Khan. But um, yeah, for me, just seeing seeing everything treated with respect and a big, I didn't like, I didn't get it at the time. But when Wrath of Khan came out, people talked about Robert Wise, you know, Day the Earth Stood Still, and Robert Wise Oscar for for West Side Story and Sound of Music and all that. But it really was like a throwback to. To uh, 2001 and, and 70s sci-fi with the pantsuits and the drab palette and and all of that and and they that did get away from what Star Trek had been on TV and they corrected that with the you know the monster maroons and and more lights and color that was a disappointment I remember it at the time not being not putting my finger on exactly what it was but in hindsight I think they made a big mistake with just it just made it drab mm. and it, it didn't come off as serious. You know, and like NASA, like with all the chrome and platinum and dark, it was just it was just drab. And Star mm-hmm. Trek had never been drab. If any, if anything, was the opposite. So yeah, it's not like they, yeah. So that was uh, 
And I just remember being mad at myself. Like the second or third time I saw it, I actually did fall asleep. Like in the third act, I dozed a little. No, and was like, oh my god, I betrayed Star Trek. You you heard it here in the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Larry Novichek fell asleep doing Star Trek: The Motion Picture. It was fifty shots in a row of reaction shots to Viger's unending Vigerness, and and I, you know, the directors (laughs) a few years ago where they tried to fix some of that. They got and get back to all they did was get back to the original plan. The whole the poor thing was so rushed. Because of the visual effects debacle with Robert Abel being, you know, a dog and pony show, and they fell for it, and then he couldn't produce, and they'd stake the whole studio's reputation on this movie living up to Star Wars, and they basic. I've heard the stories still in L.A. People, anybody who lived in visual effects, anybody that had a next door neighbor, anybody that had a kid older than two years old that can hold a paintbrush or a staple gun or something, everybody in Los Angeles <laughs> was racing around the clock to paint, you know tons of doodads for visual you know viger threads and baubles or tiny you know whatever they were doing to get stuff shot and then shipping the cans i mean robert wise took the one print of the film ready to that smithsonian air and space premiere it was the only print of the movie if that plane had gone down there was no hope for you know it'd be another week for the movie to get out and they were shipping film cans with wet film to the theaters to be there to make because they had contracted so many theaters, had, you know, Star Trek had become this thing from being, you know, ridic- it was still ridicule a lot of places, but it was definitely making money. You know, it may not have sold any movie f- action figures, but yeah, they sold tons of the Mego action figures and the bridge set and all that. So, mm-hmm. and books, wow. da, 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 so, so they had to live up to that contract. And, and uh, anyway, wow. uh, you, you, you talk about the costumes. One thing I noticed. You don't see many people cosplay the costumes from the motion picture. <laughs> um, I mean, you, you, you'll see plenty of costumes from original series and anything from Wrath of Khan back. But um, the only thing that's really survived is Kirk's Admiral uniform. I mean, that looked pretty good. We, we even seen variants of that in the J.J. movies with right, uh, the Admirals right. there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? You say that, and, and I totally agree with you. But now, but as even as you say that, the way cosplay is advancing, and people are like always on the hunt for something new and different and wacky, and usually that turns into, oh look, it's this obscure guest star from a third season episode. Oh my God, that's Oompa Loompa from you know whatever. But I, <laughs> it's like now that that's you put it out there, so now it's almost like I can just see in a year or two we're this gonna have this big like retro revival to do motion picture i can just part of that may have been because they they were so convinced this was going to be a huge hit and they spent so much money and you know they had the scene with the 400 extra live extras no cg there you know on the rec deck look we're finally going to see the whole enterprise crew in one shot it's going to be so amazing we can only do this on a movie budget and they had so (laughs) many you know and then the backups and the stand-ins and every there's so many of those and then they ditched the whole style and went with something different for the next movie. And those costumes, those uniforms sat – when I went over to watch them get ready for the Christie's auction in 06, it was, just, it, was, it was like sad. It was like the story – I'd never seen them in like you know whatever, 30 years, 40 years. But the, the locker with the motion picture uniforms in it of all those styles, and they were so elaborate and they were so – they gave them so much money to make it like three different – we're not just going to wear one thing like the Flintstones all day long. We're going to have a whole – like the real military has. But they had so many things that just sat for 40 years in warehouses. It was it was kind of sad. It was like they wow. just knew this was going to be the thing, and they spent the money on them, and they showed it off. And then they never – and they, it's not even like, 
when they had the cage uniforms and the wear no mans, and they kind of would use those for like the freighter people, like the interior. You know, even the original series would kind of recycle things. Right. But it's like you never saw a motion picture uniform again, ever on anything. Wow. Not even like dude added up on early next generation or something. It never. So yeah, maybe that's why nobody cosplayed it because they were karmic. <laughs> You know, a thousand outfits sitting there in a thousand. I'm 500 outfits sitting Miles, there. Miles, I'm going to wear a pantsuit to the next con. You watch. All right. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. Okay. Sure. We put it out there now. So there's the gauntlet. There it is. The next next cool retro, everything old is new again. Yeah. It is going to be motion. Okay. Scott. Yes. If you do, I will donate $150 to the charity of your choice. Ooh. Oh. See, that that, that does throw down the gauntlet a little bit. Hmm. If you roll up to shore leave. Wearing one of those old school pantsuits, and you wear that thing all day. One day is fine. All day. I will make a donation to the charity of your choice. There we go. And you have to do the version, you know, like the McCoy, you know, the disco collar, the 79, 78, 79 version. Yes. Thanks. Do one of those. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There you go. And then, and you have to get a purse scan. You have to get the little bio buckle thing. But also, if you do that and you roll up to Shore Leave in particular, I want, um, a selfie or I want a you know Facebook live video or something of you showing it to Mike and Denise. <laughs> you know, Denise was an extra before she knew Mike when she was Denise Tathwell. Denise was in LA and she was a big fan and was kind of in on the fan circuit. And Denise is in the rec deck scene. Oh cool. Of the of the motion that. picture. Yes. Oh wow. That's awesome. Now the the Starfleet uniforms only made that appearance in the motion picture, but we got to say that the Klingon costumes, mm-hmm. they survived um, through the movies and, and through the next gen TV series and, and beyond. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, Spock is wearing the black robe in Wrath of Khan and, and the Kling, the basically the, I mean, they refined the process and the materials they use, but the basic Klingon look stays. Yeah. Also. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think for me is I when I when I went back and rewatched it and uh, that today because we got dismissed early from my job because of the snow back east here that we're getting hammered with the the um, watching that again the thing that I really enjoyed was the interaction of the cast I mean because and I didn't grow up watching Star Trek and I you know my first Star Trek movie was Wrath of Khan that I remember watching and came into the motion picture many, many years later. Um, but I, I really enjoyed just watching, you know, Spock deadpan stuff and, uh, people would say stuff to him and he just wouldn't react. And it was just so Spock. And, uh, and, and I agree, Larry, with you that McCoy had some of the best lines here and you got to watch Kirk being Kirk. And, and I think that I had to imagine if if I grew up watching Star Trek, how much the opening half an hour hour was just a love letter to the fans who grew up and mm-hmm. watched it for three years. And it was like coming home. And I, I thought that they did a beautiful job putting that together and delivering at least the opening part of that movie that was just there for the fans and fans would be getting that. 
Well, and you know, the other the, aside from all the characters, well, they always said the Enterprise was a was the ninth whatever ninth character, and there's so much ridicule piled on. You know, the the shuttle pod flyby of the ship at every angle. People go, oh my yeah. god, it's like Kirk and Scotty making love to the ship before they ever walk them, you know, before they dock <laughs> with it for real. But that was that was so. It's like, look, kids, for all your perseverance, for all those years worshiping and believing in believing in that ship that that could really fly that you believe could fly here's we've been able to spend some money on it and here's what it looks like now and for all of you ship nerds out there here it is and if you didn't come at it from that angle which included a lot of the legit like you know film reviewers like why is there a three minute love affair to this ship model well that's it's why and you either got it or you didn't get it and you either love that or you didn't care, and you were like, "Well, that was three minutes. I could have got back somewhere." <laughs> yeah. But I, I think most fans sitting there watching it and sending me, I don't think you know, I don't think there was. A, now, the subtext there also was that Kirk was seeing the love of his life again, and they didn't really get to do that until they did the the composite for the director's cut, where you actually saw the reflection. They did the the whole shot. Of, the shot was supposed to be framed up so that the reflection in the in the pod window was. You know, in his eyes, right. he and he and the ship basically shared frame through one reflection or another, and they kind of had to you know cheap on that just for time. That's one of the many things they had to cheap on. But right, um, so there's that subtext to it. But even even without that, just people going, "Oh my god, oh my god!" And no, here, okay, so here's stupid story number one. So the movie actually, um, before I forget this, I have to share you. you ragging on me a minute ago here's the real thing to rag on me <laughs> so we're sitting watching it for the first time and my little brother he's four years younger than me so he's he's in high school and we're sitting there in our rocking you know chairs in the theater and the opening scene is like the klingon battle cruisers coming right into up against voyager up against feeder and as they came into frame watching it's like the first time you saw any star trek on a big screen it was three klingon ships and as they got closer closer to I didn't realize it till my brother did this, my little brother. But I was like instinct as they got crept toward toward you know camera and toward your point of view. They got closer and closer. I was like instinctively not realizing it, like leaning closer and closer to like see them see them better. And at one point, I finally realized like my brother had his hand on my chest. Like he's like lean back, lean back. Like I was like almost into the back of the head of the person sitting in front of me. (laughs) It was just like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I mean, I was like, look at the detail on those models. This is amazing. And because you'd seen pictures of the, you know, the poor little D7 before. But I just remember him yelling at me. And he was a fan. He was like, sit back. You're embarrassing. I was like, what? What? Oh, okay. Okay. Well, you know that. I, I, look, that, I maintained fairly well after that. But that was, I never forget that. Well, you know, in that in that scene makes you do that. Because I was, even today, I was watching it. And you kind of do lean forward as that ship comes to you. And then you pan over it. And you, it's just a fantastic mm-hmm. way of filming that shot. But Well, and again, at the, in the day, you were just blown away. It was like, oh, my God, this really is like Star Wars level you know, greebling and detail and texture for everybody that got through all the years of, you know, smooth sided ships, you know, because it was simpler, right. that whole, that whole revolution in, no, this is what we're going to do. But I'm glad they didn't do that. They couldn't do that. Thing. The whole conceit of, yes, it's smooth skin. That's how powerful it is. We don't have to show it on the outside. You know, same thing as the consoles. Right. So, um, but yeah, that's awesome. And you see a bridge full of Klingons. I mean, that's, Yes. Yeah. You didn't see that on TV series. Speaking Klingon. 
Right. Right. Yeah. Now, did, did, now, am I correct? Did Mark Mark Ukrin wrote the text for that Klingon, right? He actually didn't until le- the the Klingon they're saying was the guys on stage kind of grunting, and then they went to to Jimmy Doolin and said, "Can you make this into some write some lines, do, you know, Mister Dialects? Can you do it just on the run?" And he they worked it out, and it was all just kind of like pigeon one word, two word, three word. It was the Vulcan that that got. Um, that was done later on where they just kind of pigeon Vulcan it. And it wasn't until those two lines of Vulcan in Wrath of Khan that there's a famous story of Mark Okrun was visiting somebody that he happened to know at Paramount. And so he was like doing the tourist thing of, Oh, I'm going to eat the Paramount, the, the nice commissary, the producer's side. And, and they were talking and Harv and either somebody from the studio or Harv and Nick happened to be like sitting a table away and heard him talking about translating and came over to him and, it was just serendipity. He said, do you think you could make up a language? And he's like, yeah, sure. And they did those two lines of Vulcan that Savick is subtitled with Spock in the Torpedo Bay. And, and then when they did all the Klingon in three, they said, can you do, you know, they had the connection. So, and then, you know, bang after that. And then he did the book and then Klingon was off and running. Oh, so and he did it though. When he did it, he retconned what Jimmy and Mark Leonard had kind of like mutually grunted and strung together. For the for the subtitlers in the oh, motion picture, that's awesome. Yeah, but, but you will always give Jimmy Doing credit for actually coming up with the first words of Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic, well, fantastic. Well, you know, we're running a we're running about an hour here, but before we wrap up, is there anything else that we really? I mean, there's so much we can talk about regarding yeah. this movie. Like, we really almost need like another episode or two talking about the motion picture. And we had some great conversation, but is there anything here that we should be talking about before we kind of begin to head toward wrapping up the show? I think fans need to realize what, what this contributed moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I, mean, I talked a little bit about it before about everything they built, the models, the, 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 the sets, uh, I mean, most of these these sets survived, uh, may, maybe even into Enterprise, uh, the TV show. Um, that then you also have, um, well, you you, you have the, the the Decker Ilea slash um, feature probe character. Um, you you could definitely tell Roddenberry kind of reuse that for the Will, Will Riker, Deanna Troy um, mm-hmm. relationship there. Um, so yeah, that I'm just, there's, there's so much that this movie contributed to, to Star Trek moving forward. It's, it, it can't be over. It can't be uh, overstated. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I think one of the things that amazed me as I was, you know, doing a little bit of reading is that is how difficult not only, you know, it took 10 years to get this movie out, but not only that, but while making the movie, it was a very, it wasn't an easy process either. I mean, there were disagreements, mm-hmm. there were disagreements all over the way. Uh, somebody that apparently Leonard Nimoy had to mediate some of that. Am I, am I right about that, Larry? Yeah. Well, I mean, there were, well, not, not so much about out, outright, like, you know, brawling. <laughs> but I mean, they didn't have a finish. They didn't have a finish. They took the in thy image pilot for phase two, which was a little bit more out there. And the more it got rewritten and rewritten, you know, people, for one thing, people, 
people that were really harsh on them, including fans. I know this is a shock, but fans can be snarky at times, even in the seventies. Really? I know, I know. Pick yourself up. Um, (laughs) You know, Star Trek, the motionless picture and all of that. But uh, Star Trek, the motion sickness was, you know, but that the the biggest, the thing that really stuck was about how much the plot wound up resembling Nomad from the Changeling, right? The altered Earth probe that comes back and is wiping out its, you know, wants to meet its creator and is wiping out imperfect specimens or whatever its term is the day. And, And that's not quite... You know, the original episode, the original, uh, the pilot was meant to continue as a series. So Decker and Ilea don't die and go away. There's another, you know, there's another little bit of an ending twist to it. But the poor script was, you know, to Gene's credit, Gene got demoted after this. I mean, it made a ton of money. The studio knew that people were spending money on Star Trek, but it still didn't feel like, you know, settled in the gut. And that's why they wound up going to Harv Bennett and Harv stumbled across Nick Meyer. And then, you know, and the big reaction to the Wrath of Khan from a lot of people was, now that's more like it. And then it was kind of like, well, motion picture in some families was like your oddball cousin that nobody talked about a whole lot. But we all love because, you know, they had the really cool kids right. or something. I mean, it was just kind of an odd, you know, it was like the odd person in the family that you always loved, but it was just hard to love that hard to love them. Even though there were bits and pieces there that, you know, at once or twice, you know, once a year or so, something really cool happened that you really loved them for. And and there's that aspect of the motion picture, the things that people reacted away from that wound up building the, the you know, the movie. But um, the poor thing was just it was such a committee thing. And it, and Gene gets the blame for, you know, oh, it was so it was such a cost overrun. And so they ran up. the But everything that they had spent on what was unfair to him was. It did wind up making enough money that it didn't lose money. But the reason that the budget, quote unquote, was so high on it was they, good old bean counters, rolled all the costs from from all the previous movie, from the God thing, anything they'd spent money on with the God thing and Planet of the Titans that were what were failures, but went through lots of rewrites and and all the prep for phase two. I mean, they were building sets and costumes and visual effects. They had built the original Enterprise filming model. They had spent so much money that all got thrown toward the balance sheet for the motion picture. So part wow. of the blame was not was not totally on Gene, but it had become such a political. There's a sci-fi craze. We have to answer Star Wars. Oh my God! Now Universal's got Spielberg. The Jaws guy is doing Close Encounters. You know, it became such a political thing that that when it didn't just you know blow the lid off when it came out, although tons of people went to see it. It wound up, you know, Gene wound up being demoted, basically put out to pasture. But they knew that he had so much clout with the fans that if he, you know, if he did a thumbs down on the next movie or bent his little pinky the wrong way, that fans would stay away. And they were so worried about that. So they took him away from active production, except as an executive consultant. So he had to, he had to navigate that whole weird situation between wow. he and Harv with for the other movies. So, you know, that was fallout from here. But. A lot of stuff got thrown on him that wasn't. It was such a political football, and the script was written and rewritten, and people, so many people, and studio people had a finger in the pie, and you know, and and he didn't slight, he didn't stand up and, you know, just mow people down. He had to, he had to put up with that from where, right. from all the money being spent. It's one of those right. things that the, the more you spend on it, the bigger. It's like too big to fail, so it can't fail. So, wow. So you know, some of that good and bad happened with, right, right. happened for Gene. 
Em, any last thoughts before we uh, leave the motion picture behind? Um, I remember th- in retrospect, it's it's not a great movie, but I will watch it and I own it on beta. I own it on VHS. I I'm still going. You have a beta player. I do, and it works. Oh, okay. I'm. I restored it. I can. I keep every my head. I keep finding randomly, like on eBay, like for twenty dollars. I'll take it. I need those parts. I have it on beta. I have it on VHS. I have it on DVD. I have it on HD DVD. (laughs) <laughs> and I am probably going to buy the whole set in Blu-ray 4K uh, as soon as I get a 4K TV. There you go. There you go. That's commitment. It, that is commitment. <laughs> That's commitment. It's 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 just it's an it's it's it has affected my life in a very positive way, in a very creative way. So yeah, even though it's terrible, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of our one of our one of our listeners on on Twitter said that. That uh, Jackie uh, Jackie Hollywood Brown said parents wouldn't take her to the cinema to see it, but months later a friend had a sleepover and we watched it on the latest tech yes. CED. All right, I, I saw that. I'd never heard of a CED. Me, and me, I was there. Me neither. Yeah, yeah. I was in awe, like I was already living the future. I had to look up what CED That's, was. Is that the precursor to Laserdisc? Yes. Yeah, it was actually it was a, it was a disc that was like a, it was almost like a a phonograph record, right? That it, it played with a needle. Physical, yeah, it's like the forty fives of. <laughs> it, it, I can, they talk about how they wore out so easily. I can totally see that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that was that was pretty it's pretty incredible. So, um, but you know, um, and, and there are other people like John, John Miro that uh, from Serving Worlds. He has a podcast as a writer, fantastic guy. Said he just remembers it being a real connection with his dad. And I think for some people who grew up during the seventies, that this was this was something that he did as a family. Like even Miles, you were saying you remember watching Star Trek with your dad, and I assume that you went to see this movie with your dad. Oh yeah, we the whole family saw it. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, this is a very much of a family connection. I mean, Star Trek was very accessible. You know, whereas, you know, you know, one of the things that Star Trek Discovery gets panned is, you know, I'm not I can't necessarily sit down and watch this with my nine year old son, right? But uh Star Trek, you know, the original series and even the motion picture, you could. Yeah, so. there, here's the amazing things about motion picture. There's no phaser fire in it at all. There's one photon torpedo shot at a at a at an asteroid that's causing that wormhole. Um, it's really, in some ways, it's really atypical Star it Trek, much less you know big big screen science fiction, especially yeah. then after all the laser you know the X wing battles of that's all true. the blasting of Star Wars. So yeah. it was really kind of gutsy. It's almost like everybody got so into the tunnel with it that once it was done and just getting it done, just because they were racing the clock and just getting the damn thing done. And then it was there and everybody stood back and they went, Oh, maybe we should have had at least like one phaser. <laughs> one phaser <laughs> battle. Especially after star Wars. Right. Now, in, 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 but I think this goes back to what you're saying, Larry, about, you know, it was much more of a cerebral movie than maybe uh, what, what people were expecting. Yeah. And this, and this, this very much was Gene, you know, from that end of things. So, I mean, you had to count all those dead Klingons that were digitized at the beginning, you know, and I and Ilea goes out with a bang. So, uh, yeah. yeah, there's there's a there's a small body count, small body count in it. So, 
But Well, Larry, we just appreciate so much for you stopping by the diner tonight and just chatting with us a little bit about the motion picture. And uh, there, there were some things that you shared that I hadn't heard before. And I, I just think it's and, oh, good. And, and for, yeah. And, and for you just sharing a little bit about what's, what was going on in, in your, in your sci-fi world, the things that, uh, that you're geeking out about that you're doing that continue to add to the volume that we know about Trek. So I, I just appreciate you coming on tonight. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me. It's, it's been a while and, uh, you know, you sit, you say the motion picture, but, um, yeah, I, I, a couple of things occurred to me tonight that I hadn't thought of before. There's always something more, especially when it's been around that long. Oh yeah. People are still assimilating discovery and even, you know, the last go rounds of the JJ movies. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I was going to say real quick, you were talking, we were talking about the sets, the stage night, basically the bones they built, no pun intended, the bones they built for engineering and sick bay transporter room, the corridor, the quarters that were built for motion picture. It was very famously set on the Paramount tours for years in that were built for phase two, actually, and then dressed up like in 77, 78 were there until the beginning of Enterprise. And so till 2001, but all through next gen and Voyager, just redress those bones and put a new put a new gloss on it. Wow. And you know, some unique some you know, the designers wanted to get their money's worth out of doing it. But yeah, all through the movies and all of that. It was just it was kind of amazing. People could say these are the longest standing sets in Hollywood. They've been here since the late seventies. Wow. And then that all came to, then when they pulled them down because they wanted such a fresh take on Enterprise, they were so worried about being jaded and old and dusty by then. They wanted everybody to have some fresh blood. When they took all of that complex down and filled in the hole on the they realized that the the sets had been like holding up the roof on stage nine and they had to the pilot of Enterprise was shot without stage nine because they had to go in and like do roof repair. It had been so long. Wow. <laughs> Nobody had noticed. <laughs> that it was is sad. funny. That is hilarious. <laughs> oh. oh, fantastic. Well, Larry, where where can we send people again? Just as a reminder, if people want to find out more about you, follow you, and uh, stalk you online, where do they do that? That's the good way to stalk. Uh, Larry Nimichek, yeah, LarryNimichek <laughs> yeah, Larry uh, And then you can get to Portal Forty Seven from there, and the Rathacon, and and then my Twitter is at Larry Nimichek, and Facebook, the best, the central place is Larry Nimichek's Trekland, yeah. uh, which is also the Instagram, and uh, Larry Nimichek on YouTube. Awesome. for all my video my video interviews and everything else awesome well again thank you so much for joining us well and thank uh, you guys yeah and, uh, and thank you all for uh, listening to us talk about star trek the motion picture miles why don't you take us out of the show all right i hope you all enjoyed this till next time good night and good luck we will see ya do your dailies trek well if you've enjoyed the conversation the owners of this establishment would love to hear from you. Send your comments and feedback to the Sci Fi Diner Podcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sci fi diner. 